James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, hear the word of the Lord. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay special attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. My parents knew a man who was a veterinarian, and he had a good business, and he was prospering, and so he decided he wanted to buy a Cadillac. And so he went into the Cadillac dealership, and he had the cash in his pocket to buy the Cadillac. So this is an ideal situation for the Cadillac dealer, an easy sale. He already knew what he wanted to buy, cash in hand. But he had a problem. No one would pay him any attention. And he wandered around the dealership, and no one would show him any regard. And the reason was because as a large animal veterinarian, he was wearing his work clothes. And his work clothes were overalls. And so nobody at the Cadillac dealership would pay any attention to this man in overalls, with enough money in his pocket to buy a Cadillac with cash. And so he left, and he went to the Lincoln dealership, and he pulled out his cash, and he bought a Lincoln. And this little story illustrates something that we all experience, and that we all practice. When we see someone, we immediately make some conclusions about that person based on what we see externally. And that is probably inevitable, but it becomes a problem if our treatment of the person is different based on what we see on the outside. And that's what James is warning the church about. Now, we don't know if they were practicing partiality uh, to some, uh, uh, but there must have been some sort of a problem among them that James was addressing here in the church. 
And so this is a, a very straightforward uh, section here, and it's actually one of the easier sections to deal with because we've noticed that James tends to jump like the Proverbs do from one theme to another, and it's not always clear uh, how he gets from one theme to the another. another. Sometimes he just were, uses tag words or catch words to move from one to another. But here it's all about this question of partiality. In the first four verses, he simply says, don't do it. Don't show partiality. Then verses 5 to 7, he has some practical arguments against showing partiality. And then in verses 8 to 13, he has some biblical arguments against showing partiality. So a very straightforward section. Now this is an interesting uh, verse 1 because this is the only time in the body of the letter, that is outside of the introduction, in which James mentions by name the Lord Jesus, which is remarkable. Only two times in the whole letter, and this is the only time outside of the introduction, when he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Lord of glory. And it's an unusual expression here how he describes Jesus. Uh, it, it, it's unusual. He says, Our Lord Jesus Christ of the glory. That's kind of literally how it would be. And so the translations differ about how to translate that. Some say, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And others, like uh, this translation, say, our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. That is to say, the Lord of glory. But either one of those translations uses words from the Old Testament and applies them to Jesus. If you look in the Old Testament, God is the Lord and God is our glory. So however you translate this, James is exalting Jesus as God. He's exalting Him as the Lord, as the glorious one. Now, that's not by accident that he introduces Jesus that way, because he's soon going to talk about some little glories that tend to impress us. Things like gold rings and fine clothes. And he introduces the whole section by saying, do you want to see glory? Do you know what glory really looks like? Then look at the Lord Jesus. That's where you really see glory. And that, if we see the glory of the Lord Jesus, then we won't so easily be dazzled by little human glories and swayed in how we treat one another. Now, um, James clearly assumes here that his readers have faith in Christ. And we've seen this, that James assumes things that other letters bring out explicitly. And he assumes that the readers understand who Jesus is and have faith in Him. Verse 1 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you have or as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, assuming that they are believers and that they understand the gospel. And as I've said, James is challenging because he doesn't present the gospel explicitly like Paul or like Peter or like John, but he assumes it here. He assumes faith and his whole his whole purpose in writing this letter is, how do you have that faith? How do you hold that faith? How do you live that faith? How do you exercise that faith? And what he says here is, here's how not to do it. So this whole section is how not to hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. How not to be a Christian. How not to live as a Christian. And the not is, what we should avoid, is partiality. Now this word 
Partiality is a very colorful word that reflects the Old Testament background. And here's one of those evidences throughout James that he was very thoroughly versed in the Old Testament and also in the teaching of Jesus. And the word is something like this. It's When it says, show no partiality, it's don't regard the face. Don't, don't be impressed by the face, the outward face of the person. And that reflects a... A, an expression from the Old Testament, if we go back to Leviticus, the Old Testament reading from today, and look at one verse, you'll see how similar this sounds. Verse 15 of Leviticus chapter 19. You shall do no just injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. And both of those expressions have to do with the face. It's something like, you shall not respect the face of the poor, uh, or you shall not favor the face of the great. And that's reflected in this unusual word that James uses here. Don't be impressed with the outward face. Don't uh, regard, don't receive the outward face of the person. And as, as I said, this is something we do intuitively as humans. We size people up immediately. We see somebody, we look at a male or female, old or young. Uh, we look at how they're dressed. We look at the color of their skin. We look at how they hold themselves, how they act. And we immediately size them up and make some assumptions. And those assumptions may be correct or they may be incorrect. And, and that's probably inevitable. That's probably something that humans just do. But the problem becomes, and that's the problem that James is addressing here, if we then treat some better than the other because of these superficial, automatic judgments that we make, then there is a problem. Then we have something that contradicts our faith in Jesus Christ. And particularly if we show partial treatment to some that disadvantages others. And that's what he's warning against here. If you favor some and disfavor or disadvantage others, then that's a problem. And uh, he gives a hypothetical example here. And the hypothetical example is of a Christian meeting. And by the way, this is the only time when it says, uh, verse 2, it says of a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. That word assembly is the word from which we get synagogue, which means a gathering. But it's the only time in the New Testament when this this word synagogue is used to refer to a Christian gathering. Once again, indicating James's Jewish background and his Jewishness and his familiarity, and well, not just familiarity, but his, his immersion in, in the Old Testament and in uh, Jewish culture. But he says, uh, in this situation, let's say you're in a Christian meeting, a Christian gathering, and two men come in. One of the men, and by the way, both of them, wear their socioeconomic status very obviously. They announce with the way they are dressed their, their status in, in the pecking order of, of, of uh, economics. And uh, one man has a gold ring, which was quite remarkable. The, the Roman equestrian class uh, distinguished itself by wearing gold ring. And uh, it says that this man has on shining clothes. That's what it says, shining clothes. Lots of bling, let's say. Uh, and uh, uh, the other man, uh, it, it, it doesn't quite do justice to the poverty of the other man because it says, and a 
poor man in shabby clothing. It's more like a destitute man in putrid clothing, in filthy clothing. It's not just shabby beachwear, let's say. It is, it is putrid, smelly, filthy clothing. And so uh, he's setting up a very, very stark contrast here, the, the extremes. And uh, he says, if this happens, if this happens, oh, by the way, the fact that he sets up these extremes indicates, and we've already noticed this, that there were some differences socioeconomically in the church. There were some that were poorer, and there were some that were wealthier, which is the case in any group uh, and in any Christian church. But it looks like they were somewhere in the middle. It looks like that the, the Christians to whom he were, was writing uh, were, were not the extreme of poverty or the extreme of wealth. They were somewhere in the middle. And he says, now... Um, these two, and by the way, they, they look like they're visitors, don't they? Because they're receiving instructions about where to sit. If they were part of the church, then they would know where to sit. But they're receiving instructions, and then they come in, receiving instructions, the ushers, the welcomers, and they say to the man with the, the shining clothing and the gold ring, they said, oh, sir, please, you sit here in the best place. This is reserved for you. And then to the man in the putrid clothing, they say, oh, you sit over there, over off to the side, or sit down at my feet, which is very humiliating to that man. He says, if you do this, then you are making a judgment based on outward appearance, and you are disadvantaging one over the other. So it's not that you just make some sort of a judgment that would be inevitable if somebody comes in dressed like one or the other. You would make some assumptions automatically. But if you treat one better than the other, then you have become, what he says is, judges with evil motives by disadvantaging the poor man. Now, we want this to be our case, don't we? We want, in our gatherings, for people to come in. We want new people to come in. And we want people from every facet of society, don't we? We want everyone to be able to come into our church. And we have had some people come in from very obviously uh, different socioeconomic uh, stati. Uh, we have had some very wealthy people come in. The problem here in, Fort, uh, in, in South Florida is that you don't necessarily notice them. Uh, because they wear shorts and t-shirts as well. But uh, uh, we had somebody come into our church, and I don't even know who he was or his name, but, but there was a picture that was posted on Facebook, and some of my friends said, oh, is so-and-so going to your church? And I, didn't, I haven't been around, so I didn't know who so-and-so was. But I said, oh, well, I think he visited, but he was, I think, dressed in shorts that day, so he wasn't, he wasn't distinguishing himself, as in many cultures it would be more obvious. But we have had other people come in, uh, who have been homeless people, and some of them have uh, been exhibiting some, some signs of mental instability, and their conversations have been unusual and odd, and some, sometimes even bizarre, and the way they've been dressed, or the, 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 their life possessions that they're pulling along with them, it's been, been obvious what their socioeconomic status was. And I want to say that I, I w I've been thrilled to see how well everybody has been received. 
I really do. I, I really have been thrilled to see as people have come in, homeless people into our, into our assembly, how, how they've been welcomed and how they've been served and how they've been treated just like everyone else. But maybe we haven't had uh, quite the test that a friend of mine had. He, uh, he took a call to a church on Capitol Hill, on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. And the kind of people that wander into church uh, on Capitol Hill are homeless people. You have uh, many homeless people in destitute people in Washington, D.C. But you also have senators and congressmen and congresswomen and, and probably judges and, and other high-ranking officials. And they are probably not like South Floridians coming in in shorts and t-shirt. They probably come in with their, their security attachment and so on. So it's pretty obvious who these people are. And when my friend became the pastor of this church, he discovered that they had a custom there. And they had the custom of giving special recognition to the dignitaries who were among them. And my friend said, excuse me? James chapter 2. So among the many changes he made uh, to that church, and it's a thriving church now, but it was a kind of a dying church at the time, but it's a thriving church now. But one of the changes he said is, we are not going to do that anymore. Now, um, James goes on and gives some practical arguments. And uh, the practical arguments are several. The first one is in verse 5. And the first one is this. That God has chosen the poor. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? We saw this in one of the earlier sermons. This sounds very much like the Sermon on the Mount, the, the version in Luke, doesn't it? Where Jesus says in Luke 6, Blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. And this sounds very much like that, almost as if James had been present uh, when Jesus preached that sermon, which is likely. And he says here that God has chosen the poor, and God is giving the kingdom to the poor. So if you are, if you are disadvantaging, if you are despising, if you are rejecting the poor, you are rejecting those whom God has chosen. Now, this may be a theological statement, this is not a particularly theological letter like you might think of Romans or Galatians or Ephesians. This may be a theological statement about God's eternal election. But it may just as likely be a statement of uh, empirical observation. Saying, look around. Look around at yourselves and whom has God chosen? Of what is your church composed? Uh, he invited the Corinthians to do that as well. Uh, because the Corinthians had a tendency to be, just like we all do, kind of impressed with themselves. And, um, and he says in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, look around folks. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So, if you are chosen and you want to reason, 
You want to look for a reason beyond the, the eternal will of God about why you're chosen? Well, Paul says, because you're foolish and weak and lowly and despised and nothing. And the whole point of that is so that God is the one who gets the glory because salvation is from God from A to Z. So he may just be saying that. Look around, folks. We're just not that impressive in the eyes of of the world. Now, we should not interpret this statement to be some sort of salvation by poverty, that somehow automatically all the poor are chosen, and that, that, the, that the way to be saved is to, to be poor. Because if you go back to James and look at verse 5, it says this. It says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? So it's not talking about the poor in general, it's talking about the poor who are believers. The poor who are believers, those who love Him, whom God has chosen. And we could do this as well. It may not be obvious in our context, but if we look around the world at Christians, we will find that there are more poor Christians than there are well-off Christians. Well, one of the reasons is because there are more poor people in the world than there are well-off people in the world. But not only that, not only that, a numerical sort of thing, but there is something that I have observed and, and James brings out here. The poor are often rich in faith. And we could even say richer in faith than those who are better off. Why is that? Well, it likely it's because they sense something that the well-off do not sense as acutely, as keenly. And that is their utter dependence upon God. And I have been among Christians of very wide uh, economic stati, and, and I've seen different tendencies when, when some issue comes up, or when some need comes up, or when some problem comes up, and those with means tend to say, well, how can we solve this? What can we do? Let's, let's throw some ingenuity, let's throw some planning, let's throw some money, let's throw some resources at it, and we'll take care of it. And I've also seen that those who are less well-off tend to say, let's pray. Let's pray. And let's trust God. It's not that they're inactive, but oftentimes there's not much they can do, and so they feel their utter dependence on God. And so they are rich in faith. And they have, have taught the church many lessons about what it means to believe. And that's what James is saying. So if you're despising those who are poor in the world's eyes, you're despising the, the rich in faith, those whom God has chosen, those to whom God is giving His kingdom, those whom God loves, and those who love God. That's the first reason. The second practical argument is that the, the believers in James's day were being persecuted. By whom? By the, the wealthy. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? He's saying, why are you, why are you currying favor? Why are you trying to, to impress those who are the very ones who are oppressing you? And not only are they oppressing you, but they are blaspheming the name, and here's an indirect reference to Jesus, they're blaspheming the name of Jesus. 
And, and, and so, uh, yes, it's right that Christians should love their enemies. And if that's all they were doing, James would be writing them and saying, great, you're doing a great job. Jesus said, love your enemies. That's great that you're loving your oppressors. Congratulations. But that's not what they were doing. It wasn't they were loving them. They were, they were showing partiality to them. And they were disfavoring the poor to try to gain favor, apparently, with the wealthy. That's the second argument. And then he goes to biblical arguments that, of course, are even stronger. In verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 says that partiality, it violates the law of love. The law of love. Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture, and here's the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. James is interesting because he refers to the law a number of times and he refers to it by calling it the royal law, the law that gives freedom, or sometimes he just refers to it as the law. He also refers to the perfect law. What is this royal law, this law that gives freedom, this perfect law? Well, it's God's moral law as interpreted and as applied and as fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Do you want to read the royal law? Read Matthew 5 where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, and he quotes from the Old Testament law, and then he says, but I say to you, and he doesn't contradict it, but he fulfills it, and he brings out the depth of its meaning. That's the royal law. The law that King Jesus has, has, has fulfilled and has applied. And he says, if you're fulfilling the royal law, that's great. The law of love. To love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And this is, this is the summary you remember when they asked Jesus, they said, Teacher, what's the most important commandment? And He said, I'll give you two. He said, the first one is, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deuteronomy 6. Then He says, and the second one is like it, Love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus chapter 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's one of those laws that we never, ever can check off. And say, done that, what's next? Because what it's saying is, everything you do for yourself, to take care of yourself, the, the proper self-love, not in a pop psychology sense, but the proper self-care that we have for ourselves, do that for everyone else. You feed yourself, then feed others. If you clothe yourself, clothe others. If you house yourself, house others. If you give medical attention to yourself, give that to others. So you see that this is a, a law that we will never end fulfilling. And you see how far-reaching it is. He says, if you're, if you're working on that, you're doing well. He says, but if you show partiality, verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And then he says this, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. He wants us to see how the law works here. And the way to think about this is the law is a whole. The law is not piecemeal. You can't pick and choose and say, well, I, I keep this, but not so sure about that. And you can't say, well, you know, I, I got a majority going on here. I, most of it, most of it I'm working on. He says, no, the law is a whole. When Apple built its, uh, its new headquarters out in California in 2015, they installed what they claim, I can't verify this, what they claim to be the largest curved piece of glass in the world. Now, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if there are, are uh, 
telescopes that have larger pieces of glass or not, but they have a piece of glass, the largest one. I haven't seen the office, of course, but, but uh, it's, a, it's a modern, amazing structure with, with lots of uh, glass around it. But the largest piece is 10 and a half feet in height by 47 feet uh, in length. So this is an enormous piece of glass. Now compare that to a stained glass window. And you could have a stained glass window that's enormous as well. And let's just pretend you take a BB gun and you shoot at Apple's glass and you break it. Or you take a BB gun and you shoot at a stained glass window and you break it. Now, if you break the Apple glass and you go to Tim Cook and say, oh, sorry, I'll just replace this piece of it. Is that okay? Would that work? It wouldn't. Why? Because you break one piece of it, what have you broken? You've broken the whole thing. If it were like a stained glass window, you could say, well, I'll just buy this, I'll just replace this little piece here, and that would be fine. And that's how they repair stained glass. But that's not how the law is. And he says, so, so be careful here. And he says this example in verse 11, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Why did he use these two examples? Well, it could be this. Do you remember when Jesus talked about, back in chapter 5 of Matthew, about how the murder prohibition works? You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother has committed murder in his heart. And so it looks like what James may be doing here is applying that, almost as if he had been there, which he may well have been, to hear that and saying, and saying not only anger, but also partiality is a transgression of the law against murder. Because it is, in your heart, it is despising, it is disfavoring, it is treating poorly someone on the basis of superficial factors. And so he might say, well, that's great. You're faithful in your marriage. That's wonderful. You're keeping that commandment. But if you despise those, let's say of another race or of another nationality or of another socioeconomic status, then you are guilty of breaking the law. Do not murder. And because it is a whole, you are guilty of breaking the law. That's the, that's the argument, the biblical argument. But there's another one that goes beyond that. And it's in verse 12. And this argument is that there's a coming judgment. It says in verse 12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law. And here he calls it what? The law of liberty. The law of liberty. So he says, remember. Remember as you are passing judgment on other people. Remember that there is a coming judgment and you will not be the judge in that coming judgment. You will be the judged in that coming judgment. And so he says, so remember that. And so speak and so act as those who will not always be in the position of judging, but who will be in the position of being judged. And then he says this, for judgment without mercy is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. So he's saying, think about what you're doing now. If you are not showing mercy to the poor, 
you are saying then you don't want mercy in that great day of judgment. What's he doing here? He's extending the golden rule into the day of judgment. The golden rule that Jesus said. He said, do unto others as you would what? Have them do unto you. And what he's doing here is he's extending that and saying, do unto others as you would have God do unto you in the day of judgment. So he's making this uh, and extending it out to that great day. So, if you don't want mercy from God on the day of judgment, then don't show mercy to others now. If you want to be judged on the basis of your external appearance on the day, the day of judgment and to be treated according to, to how you look on the day of judgment, then, then treat others that way now. But, if you want mercy on the day of judgment, then treat others with mercy now. If you don't want to be judged on, on the basis of yourself on that day of judgment, then, then don't pass judgment on other people now. Jesus told a parable about mercy and forgiveness. And He said there were, there were two men. One was a, a debtor and he owed a vast sum of money and he couldn't pay it back. And so the master said, well, just, just sell him, sell his family, and he can pay his debt that way, a little bit of it anyway. Even that way, he wouldn't have paid it all. It was an unpayable debt. And the man fell down, and he said, have mercy on me, and I'll pay it all. Which was absurd, because he couldn't pay it all. It was an unpayable debt. But still, his plea was for what? It was for mercy. And, and the Lord had mercy on him and forgave him that unpayable debt. And then he went out and he encountered in the way a man who owed him. It wasn't an insignificant sum for a day laborer. It was maybe a third of a year's wages for a day laborer, but it was a payable sum. And he went up to that man and he said, pay me what you owe. And the man said the same thing that he had said to the Master. He said, have mercy on me. And he wouldn't. He wouldn't. He said, no, I am going to make you pay me everything you owe. <coughs> Other servants saw this and were grieved and they went to the Master and said, Master, we understand that you forgave our fellow servant a great sum and he was unwilling to forgive his fellow servant a much, much smaller sum. And then the master called the man and he said, should you not have had mercy on others like I had mercy on you? That's the, the point here. The point is not that we will somehow gain God's mercy by treating others with mercy. The point is this, if you have received mercy from God, then you will show that you have received mercy from God by showing mercy to others. That's the positive. The negative is don't show partiality. The positive takeaway is this, show mercy if you have received mercy. And James ends on this simple, powerful, concluding statement. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that, my friends, is our hope. 
That, my friends, is our hope in the day of judgment. That, that mercy will triumph in that day of judgment. We call it the day of judgment, and it is a day of judgment. But what will triumph on that day of judgment for all who are in Christ Jesus by faith? Mercy will triumph over judgment. And how do we know that? Because there is one who received the judgment. The one who was the perfect keeper of the perfect law. And that was the one who was judged in our place. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He received judgment so that we, if we have faith in Him, might receive mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment on the day of judgment. And the point is, may mercy triumph over judgment in our lives as well. Let's pray. Our God, how thankful we are that on that day of judgment, because of Jesus, we can expect mercy from You. Not judgment. Not condemnation. And we pray, O God, for those of us who have faith in Jesus, that we would hold our faith in Jesus with mercy toward others. That we would not be guilty of showing partiality treating some better than others because of external factors, but rather that we would fulfill that royal law, having received mercy, that we would show mercy, having received love, that we would love, that we would, would, O God, love our neighbor as ourselves. Freely, O God, we have received. May we freely give. In the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.